Hey everybody, welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every single week. I'm James and back with me today, I have my co-host Jessica and Henry and our second ever guest, Lauren Bevan. Lauren's got a heck of a background in clinical, financial, operational and digital in the NHS and in her guest application, described herself as having an interesting perspective on things in brackets of course I would say that and I don't have a product to push either so it won't be like one of those awful interviews where people keep making a tenuous link to whatever they'd like to flog so long story short I'm really looking forward to this Uh, Lauren would you like to say hi tell us a bit about yourself and tell us how your week's been well what how do I um sort of recover any semblance of being a normal person after that. <laughs> <laughs> You're in good company, don't worry. <laughs> so yeah, um say so very weird background in terms of um going around the houses in terms of trying a lot of things in the NHS. Um my first foray into it was actually as a ward cleaner. So I worked in sort of summer holidays sort of um cleaning wards my dad was a an estates manager in the NHS for 30 years so I was sort of constantly sitting in an estates room uh, after school waiting for a lift home and no I don't understand why um the heating in the NHS defies any laws of physics <laughs> I, I do ask him a lot about why does it make no sense and I still haven't got a decent answer and he's retired now so I guess we'll never know um but yeah, I'm uh, yeah very much looking forward to, to being um, on here. And yeah, just to say thank you. I've, I've just come back from maternity leave a few weeks ago and I was using Pigeon as my way of sort of staying in touch with what was going on whilst simultaneously oh, um, nice. managing to sort of bob a baby on my knee and try and actually understand what on earth was going on because, you know, it, it's been an interesting time to, to step out of things. Uh, so always good to, to keep um, my finger on the pulse around what's been going on. So thank you for... Pigeon. You're very welcome. Looking forward to getting into it. Um, Jess, Henry, how have your weeks been? Uh, survived, uh, in, in a word. And the heat, I think, was uh, intense for us all. We're all in it together and we got through that. And it's also just been a busy week. Um, it's had some great meetings, great conversations, meeting new people up in London, uh, which is always good now that we can get back to doing those fun things. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to a rest of the weekend. I feel like I could probably say that every week, but here we are. In a word, hot, I think. <laughs> it's just been very warm. And because, obviously, we've got our proper mics out for this, it's the first time my fan has been off. So I'm thinking in about 16 to 17 minutes, I might actually melt. Let's see how that goes. <laughs> very nice. I went to uh, Dr. Doctor's 10-year birthday party last night. Dr. Doctor famously a very 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 good digital health company in the uk doing lots of incredible work uh for their nhs clients they yeah incredible company they've gone from i was speaking to their deputy ceo uh last night and yeah he's been at the company they went from 10 people to 100 people and just seeing the the scale of dr doctor and what they did in the in the pandemic as well and all it's just it's awesome what dr doctor been doing but um yeah i did my classic i did this before the the podcast i was last on on pigeon and had one beer and i come here with like a hoarse voice sounding hungover i promise it was only one it might have been two um, but here we are again. It does. It starts to become a trend, doesn't it? it this is the, this is the, the concerning. Trend. This is the concerning bit now, because um, then it becomes an expectation, and 
then my identity and you know, it's it's a slippery slope but anyway um stay, stay tuned for podcast 10 where we, we stage an intervention <laughs> anyway how about let's get into the news First story this week. Henry, tell us about this one. Telehealth giant Cree has raised $160 million in Series D follow-on. Tell us what's going on. This is an interesting one, isn't it? Because they got rid of 10% of their staff a couple of months ago, making cuts because of the economy. So that was a couple of months back. They also raised $300 million last April, which is the original Series D, and this is the the follow-on to that. It's really interesting to see what they do with the rest of this Series D follow-on. So they've they've mentioned that they're going to be using that to build out their relationships with public healthcare bodies. And it's, there's no doubt that they're one of the, the big players in this sector, but they're looking to reinforce their primary care presence and they're looking to grow out, which I think is a sort of a fairly new direction for them, looking to grow out their specialist and secondary care things as well. Um, so they're looking at mental health, women's health and other areas. So it'll be really interesting to see how they do. I wonder if they're going to try and sort of reinstate the workforce that they got rid of or whether they are plowing more of more money into technology and R&D. So it'll be really interested to see where this one goes. I saw um, Juliet Bauer speak at King's Fund week before last and she was saying that they were going to um, be doubling down on, on the women's health side of things so I think that was the thing that she was referencing at least to the the gathered audience was the thing that she was most excited about around what that would allow them to do so she was was talking um about that funding announcement less so about the 10 percent um (laughs) unsurprisingly um but at least that's the stated aim of what she was looking to do and also looking at to make it more about um being able to do more pathway coordination so a bit more about continuity of care which seems like a reasonable thing because at the moment I think it's quite episodic not necessarily having seen the product in action but again seems seems like a decent way to go. Coming at it from a communications perspective I think that this announcement is particularly interesting because as Henry says they made no reference to these cuts and also, it was timed very well, given that they're going into women's health in a much bigger way, with the launch of the Women's Health Strategy, which has just, just come out this week from the Department of Health and Social Care. Um, and, you know, there's still a large part of that that is re- related to, to mental health as well. So whether it's fortuitous timing or uh, good planning, um, you know, we just don't know. But I think it's uh, it's interesting to think about. And I think it's very remiss of them to not mention the environment in which they sit right now and the events of the last couple of months, because I don't, it's all one and the same thing. I don't think you can talk about one without the other. If you're being really authentic in in the way that you're communicating and you're talking about the growth of a business, it's that's a to, to lay off 10% of your business is a huge event. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, from a communications perspective, if I was there, if I was, you know, supporting them and giving them my advice, I would have come at it from a much more genuine human perspective. And yes, it's great to have, have you know raised this money, but I, I would have been very front-footed in actually tackling the elephant in the room, and it is a big elephant in the room. And so, you know, perhaps avoidance is a well, it will be a very intentional tactic, I think. But I would like to see more companies just being very honest and transparent about 
these kinds of decisions that they're making and the trajectory of you know their future and you know it, we're, we're hearing it, it, it with within our network as well you know people raising and at the same time making difficult decisions to extend their runway or whatever that might be but you know transparency I think is the really key thing here um, and I think it goes a really long way in an industry like healthcare I don't know anyone else think, thinks about that you know glaring omission but I think it's quite important I think I've, I've seen quite a few subtweets about it over the past 24 hours as well. There's quite a few people that have, have picked up on um, the difference in tone versus reality and um, health tech's a small world. So, you know, those people who have been laid off, um, you know, it, it would be like a kick in the teeth. I can't imagine being laid off by somebody for that reason and then being expected to, to celebrate their success. Um, so it, it also feels a little bit short-sighted. I don't know, they might have reached out separately to those, those affected individuals. I've no, no knowledge of that. Um, but in an environment where good health tech people are hard to come by, it also feels mm-hmm. slightly short-sighted from a recruitment perspective to be doing that. Because if you're looking they'll be looking to hire people I presume at least for part of it and it might make certain people think twice around culture and value fit yeah I think it's a huge missed opportunity to really control the narrative they they could have controlled the narrative but by omitting that element from this announcement you know it's created a space that other people are going to fill and other people are going to lead that narrative and drive that conversation. Um, and they're not at the front of that. They're not being able to now have their input because anything that they they follow up with feels like an afterthought. And I think it's, you know, an opportunity for a masterclass, I think, in crisis communications, um, despite the fact it's not technically a crisis, but it's the aftermath of a crisis. And it goes to show that you have to be so mindful of you know, how you present yourself to the world, not just at the time of a particular event, but in the months, years following it even. You can't view these things in isolation. So this is the danger of getting too big. Like they're they're probably one of the three biggest gone from in in the last ten years or so, one of the three biggest companies, particularly in Europe. Is this the danger of you grow too fast on VC funding, you don't look at your runway properly and you just sort of get out, out of control or is there something else we think that might be behind it? It feels like it's a change of tack to me. So it might be that they've hired in the wrong place with the wrong skills, or they've made a decision to pull a feature or um, an area. Maybe a deal fell through that, that again, is not for us to know and obviously wildly speculating. But that's the sort of thing where obviously you would have to make some hard decisions. But again... To Jess's point, I think you need to be front-footed with that. And I think that makes people feel more, I guess, corporate empathy. If you're like, well, well, actually, you know, things have changed. We've decided to prioritise something else. I think people are much more accepting of that rather than it seeming like it's a, a bit more like having a look at your your PL and going, oh, don't think we can afford all these people now. Um, so I think it's a difference between it coming across as an as an accidental byproduct, which feels a bit like 
um, slightly lax financial management versus a um, understood planned decision, which is not a good one, but sometimes things need to be made. So it's, it's proactivity versus um, something that, that feels a bit reactive. I do have sympathy. I mean, it, it's it's a tough line to walk, isn't it? Wanting to still give confidence to those investors that they have whilst just needing to make the right business decision the how you end up communicating that there's so many so many so many moving parts to it um but i can appreciate that everybody's as everybody said the way it's been communicated could perhaps have been done differently um of course we don't know what's gone on behind the scenes interesting story uh written up in sifted by kai nicole schwartz um it's a good article always is from kai so thank you kai So our second story today, Amazon partners with Fred Hutchinson on cancer vaccine. And as Henry kindly points out in the Pigeon email this or newsletter this week, uh, Fred Hutchinson is a cancer centre in Seattle, not just some bloke, although probably was some bloke at some point. Uh, Henry, you can talk us through that joke later on. Uh, all the jokes, all the best jokes are well explained. <laughs> um, if, if, you, if you can tell us a bit more about who Fred Hutchinson was, for example. Uh, but Jess, do you want to tell us about the actual story first? Yeah, so basically, Amazon have collaborated with the Frank Hutchinson Cancer Centre in the development of what is a personalised immunotherapy vaccine for solid tumours in cancer, uh, in cancer, in breast cancer and melanoma, which are some of the most common cancers globally. And from my point of view, this is incredibly interesting for a few different reasons. So the first is that there's been a lot in the news this week about Amazon and their pretty bold moves in healthcare over the last couple of well, last couple of weeks, I think what, they acquired one medical as well for $3.5 billion in cash. So I think they're being taking some bold steps. Um, but what's most interesting for me, apart from the fact that this is, you know, an incredible step forward in cancer care and precision cancer care um, and doing very cool things with people's cells to turn them into like warrior cells to fight the cancer, which is always interesting. But... It feels to me like we're starting to see some kind of transition from where big tech is actually moving into big pharma or is it big healthcare? I don't know. Um, So I I wonder if this is an early indicator of what we're going to see in industry and in the space and how perhaps some of these big tech companies are making themselves hyper relevant here. For this one in particular, it's interesting because the new antigen vaccine, which is the type of vaccine that it is, the potential for those new antigens, which is how um, basically it's the flags that come up on tumours that indicate that the cancer's there, so the body knows to attack them. Those were, um, the potential for them was identified and accelerated through use of bioinformatics. So I think it's a treatment that has technology at its core, despite being an immunotherapy that as I say, uses the body's own immune system to to fight the disease. Um, But yeah, I'm interested in what other people think about, in particular, this move from big tech to big pharma and what's the future going to look like? Are are we going to see Apple doing something similar? 
So I think it's interesting in terms of the funding route as well, obviously. I mean, the jaw on the floor in terms of it being paid for in cash, you know, in my head, it's kind of the sort of Scrooge McDuck with big money bags sort of tipping up on someone's doorstep. I think (laughs) it's... um, it's an interesting one around the end-to-end supply chain because you can foresee a model whereby they fund the research, um, the production side of things, and then we're obviously seeing more and more things where they're using sort of drone delivery and, and other things in terms of pilots. So you can see um, an Amazon-owned or, or you know, other other big tech companies are available, but that sort of capture of, of the whole thing the actual getting it through all of the approvals process is pretty tricky. So having the staying power and having multi-year cycles of funding to be able to do that and being able to afford to fail, given the way that governments have, you know, have got their GDP after COVID, there are going to be fewer funding opportunities for some of these things. So are we going to see a surge in um, they then being primary funders for things and what's that going to mean for the type of things which get funding and um, are we going to see stuff which has uh, been traditionally um, lower level um, conditions where big farm companies couldn't make a huge margin are we going to see a shift in the types of conditions which are going to be uh, considered as, as part of those strategies for reference Fred Hutchinson was a baseball player whose brother was a doctor there you go it's not actually that interesting. He was very heavily into smoking and died very young, uh, well, youngish, like mid-40s, uh, and his brother set up a cancer research centre in his name, which is now one of the biggest cancer research centres in the West Coast, on the West Coast, in, on, on the West Coast. Very nice, very nice. So on to story number three, Olive Cuts 450 staff as the CEO cites missteps with fast growth and lack of focus. Now, given what we've just talked about, about communication and about honesty and about difficult decisions and job cuts, this is obviously a very different looking article, which is literally calling these things out. Um, Henry, talk to me. Yeah, it does call them out. Um, missteps, which is a direct quote from the CEO. It doesn't missteps as a word doesn't really butter any parsnips, does it? Like, if you're citing missteps as a reason for lack of focus, but also bigging yourself up for your fast growth, you're the CEO. It's your job to provide focus, mm. to provide strategy. And missteps is not. Again, this is a. I would argue a more human press release and a more human story in the way that they've approached things, but. These, these are people's lives and jobs and in, you know, for the US staff, their health benefits, their ability to pay their rent, their mortgage. Missteps isn't good enough. Missteps is not holding your hand up. Missteps is a sort of like, oops, <laughs> oh no, it's it's an acknowledgement, but it, for me, it doesn't go far enough. I'm not saying, you know, he needs to go and kind of prostrate himself in the streets and, and say, look at all these awful things that have happened. But I don't know, missteps feels like, feels like the wrong word. Anyway, without focusing on a single word. They are doing some good things. They're offering severance benefits, outplacement services, and 60 days of salary continuation, which is really positive, and they should be well, not applauded for that. That should be the minimum, but they are doing that, and they don't legally have to, I don't believe. 
Um, but it raises a really interesting point that we've sort of already covered around the responsibility companies have, especially those who've raised massively. Like they've raised 902 million since they started in what, 10 years ago. But of that, $832 million has come in the last two years. Do those companies who are raising this mega VC money, do they have a responsibility to their staff to ensure that they are constantly planning for events like this? It's not like the economy has gone down the drain overnight. It's been coming. It's, if you're not planning your runway to take into account of the economy, you're not, in my opinion, doing the right thing by your team, by your staff. Like you're, you're seeing them as a resource. Here's a question then. If you're employed in this market right now, do you think there is a responsibility on individuals in some way to look at the organization they are part of and to think themselves, I might be better off somewhere else if this goes the direction I think it will? Is there any responsibility there? Or do you think that realistically the captain of the ship is responsible for all and, and you know, everybody should feel safe and secure no matter what? It's a very difficult one to balance that, isn't it? Because... What everyone wants, what most people want when they're employed is transparency from the senior mm-hmm. leadership, right? We're, I think Somex are hyper-transparent with everything that we do. Like we go through everything together as a team. People want that transparency, but at the same time, I've been in situations where there has been transparency and it's not looked good. And that's when people start mm. job hunting. That's when you start actually <laughs> opening those emails from recruiters <laughs> in your LinkedIn and um, getting <laughs> going through those, like that's when that starts happening and that creates another level of destabilization. So it's it's really hard. And I wouldn't want to be in the position that Olive mm-hmm. CEO or any of the CEOs of these big companies or even smaller companies have been in recently because that's really tough. As a CEO, do you go down that route of transparency and like and you know and tell people that the economy is going down and that the company is not performing as well as it might or you would like it to be? Or do you sort of uh, lock yourself in the cabin and keep steering the ship and not admit anything's wrong? Is there, there's a balance somewhere between those two? You don't want to terrify your staff because you could be misreading a blip. It might be that one contract drops out and actually three more come in the next week. You never know how these things are going to go, but there's responsibility on both sides. I would say the onus is on the C-suite to be hyper-transparent. But if you explain the issues, if you say, this is what this is the problem. This is the economy. This is the issues we're having related to that. And these are the steps we are taking to mitigate it early, really early. Like when you first start feeling that, that's a much better way of doing it. And then the individual can look at their own personal situation and go, look, I've got mega mortgage, three kids, car loan, whatever it is. I need to keep my healthcare benefits. I need to keep an income to enable to be able to support my family. Should I go into a more stable area of the industry? Should I transform, transform? Should I move into a different industry? Those kind of things. There's dual responsibility. I think you're absolutely right. And I think it goes back to what we talked about before in that whether it's internally or externally, it's about controlling the narrative. And obviously we're not party to you know what's going on inside organisations and those conversations too. But I think you know it is possible to have a appropriate level of transparency and have honesty uh, and, and be able to c- kind of control that narrative for what it means and put the context around it, as you said. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, there will be, in, in the absence of that narrative, there, there, that, that void will be filled because some people are going to know about it and it's going to cascade irregardless. So, you know, it, it, it goes to show actually the importance of how you communicate internally 
as as is uh, and it's as important as you communicate externally um and you know managing that is a really critical part of leadership and, and running a business i think so yeah I'm, i'd be interested to just be a fly on the wall in some of these conversations to sort of see how it goes down i was just going to say i think from a i say there's a finance person i think it's incumbent on the the director of finance cfo to be doing those sensitivity analysis as well so there's a bunch of stuff where you can see you need to be scenario planning you need to have your kind of upsides and downsides and to be constantly checking against that and I think that's probably the weather vane to sort of direct some of those comm strategies has to be driven from from a bit of of data both in terms of what you see your own position in the market to be but also the wider economy but triangulating that with what you're seeing in terms of staff turnover and other stuff in terms of internal sentiment to understand that because you're only as good as your people when, when, with these sorts of things as well. So to Henry's point around people making the personal decisions around whether or not they can tolerate the level of uncertainty that's being presented by the current market or the current employment opportunities, then I think there is a way of, of triangulating all of that um, soft intelligence as well as hard intel to, to be able to make a better call on things and to understand um, what you're able to do. I think that's where you see companies where it gets destabilised because either they're leaning too far on the emotional side of things and not enough on facts or the other way around where they're just looking at the revenue and not looking at the fact that all of their employees are looking to leave and they're all fed up because you're not going to have your position for that long if you've, if you've just got a bunch of disenfranchised people because it just doesn't work. I think that's it, isn't it? I think that's why this discussion's actually been really nice to be part of. I think we've what I've essentially learned from this is that it's a balance. It's actually taking all of that information and figuring out the right level of transparency to your employees along the way, but also to do enough of that planning yourself to know and to mitigate what might and could go right and wrong along that journey. So I think, yeah, it's, it's not, it, there's no, there's no black and whites in this clearly, but this is a hot topic. And I think a lot of people listening that have startups or part of startups, particularly if you're part of one, you might want to look around and think about your own risk tolerance and actually the stories that you're being told by your company and whether they line up with what you actually think and to do a bit of work yourself on that regard, hoping and knowing that in some way your senior management are doing that for you and the company as well. I think it would be remiss not to have that in your mind to be doing it though, uh, yourself. So story number four this week is bias in AI. It's a matter of time. So in this analysis, David Newey, Deputy CIO at the Royal Marsden, explores temporal bias. Actually, he looks at a lot of different biases, actually, and it's it's a really good article for understanding what bias in AI actually is, but particularly goes into temporal bias in health tech AI. Lauren, tell us about this one. So I think it's a really well-balanced, reasoned article by David. So I think it's really informative uh, and I think it poses a lot of interesting questions. So having been involved in a couple of um, really interesting projects and programmes that look at, at, at AI, 
and also the regulation of it, I think it poses some, some good um, pauses for thought in there. Um, one of the, I guess, the cognitive traps that I've found myself in before is thinking, well, we're, you know, the UK's, we've got the NHS, right? So we've got, you know, it, it's free for everybody. We've got data that is coverage. So we don't have any of this issue that a paid for service in the States has where if you can't pay for it, you you can't get the tests and therefore your results aren't available. So you've already got a selection bias that sits there. I have had to question that quite a few times to think, well, that makes, you know, the NHS isn't free from those biases. It's, it, I think they're more hidden in terms of equity of access and what it means in terms of people having their symptoms believed. So I think it's a, a little bit more insidious um, and that makes it slightly harder for us to um, tackle the biases as they come through because it gives the auspice of a complete data set, which makes it slightly harder to sort of dig into. So I, I found that interesting and, and also the um you know obviously the whole thing about ai is it learns right so how do you regulate something that's constantly moving and i think that is something that i think regulators both in the uk and abroad i don't think anyone's really cracked that yet in terms of something that feels proportionate um but also with with safeguards and i i wouldn't want there to be a really big disaster where something you know causes a lot of clinical harm for people you know for the pendulum to swing too far the other way and, and to put paid to a load of really good innovations for the sake of innovators not being able to navigate through all of those you know potentially quite um difficult long-winded and to the point of runway as well you know we've just been talking about that the longer you put a, a, a um, an approvals process in which is quite heavy-handed you're also reducing the amount of people that can make it to the end of that so again that balancing act feels like a theme for all the stories we've been talking about um today uh, i think this is another example of that in in practice yeah when i read this the thing that stuck out for me I'm not a technologist and actually I talk about AI machine learning in health tech, but I talk about it more, I suppose, from the bit that I understand, which is more of the adoption side. I actually had no idea that there were so many different types of bias that could occur in AI. Uh, implicit bias, sampling bias, temporal bias, overfitting to training data, edge cases and outliers, you know, I, I had no idea that all of that bias could creep in. Obviously, then goes on to focus about temporal bias, um, defined as we can build a machine learning model that eventually becomes obsolete due to future events not factored into the model. And that's what you're talking about there in part, which is that the longer that we take to get things regulated and the longer that we take to get these adopted and for the longer these things take to actually make impact it could be and uh, he summarizes at the end quite well time waits for no one and we might be in a position where we've just run out of time for that potential effectiveness all that resource all that money that's gone into it all of that potential impact seemingly being obsolete it's uh it's interesting. Do you think this is doom and gloom? Do you, or, or do you think, yeah, do you think that with regulators and clinicians gaining trust and uh, 
procurement and adoption challenges. Do you think all of this will find a balance or do you think it is potentially doom and gloom? Do you think temporal bias will take effect, that things will be obsolete in the time that they take to get to market and otherwise? What do you think, Lauren? I think that it gives an unfair advantage to people that have got scale to begin with. So I think that it disadvantages startups because in order to follow the rules, you need to know what the rules are. Mm. And that's quite difficult to get um, get your head around. So because I sit on the Tech UK board for health and social care, one of the things that we've fed back time and time again is, mm. is that the people who um, set the rules charge you to get a copy of the rules. And that can <laughs> run into several thousand pounds. Wow. And, and that feels like a bit of a... You know, it's like every driver being charged for the highway code. You know, that's the best analogy I can come up with. If you need people to abide by it, you need to make that accessible and not necessarily charge innovators for access to it, um, given that it's so critically important. Um, so I think that's that's like an easy way of, of making it slightly more even-footed. But I don't think it is doom and gloom, but I do think that NHS procurement teams are not particularly great at buying technology it either seems to be a, a bit too kind of blue sky um you know without great contractual causes to, to tie people to outcomes or it's so rigid that it doesn't allow for the evolution of, of a product or a service once it's in so i think that is the thing that is the, the sort of stranglehold on the market, at least in the UK, I think it are those kind of ways that things can be bought in a sensible way. Um, and I think that is, again, those are the two biggest impact changes that I would suggest at, from a UK perspective would, would help innovators is, you know, tell them what they need to do, make it easier for them to be bought, but be bought in a way that ties them to outcomes, because that's all it is. You, you kind of don't really care how you get there as long as it's safe, legal, secure and has got patient benefit so why are we making this really hard was that not what DTAC was meant to be or like what DTAC's for like to give you a set of an umbrella set of criteria of standards that everyone has to conform to and that's that's free right like anyone can apply to to be to go through DTAC assessment yeah yeah, DTAC's free but the standards that you have to abide by are not free Right. So it gives you the reference to the standard, but then that calls out to a website where you can put your credit card details in. That, that for me, is the Swiss. That's, yeah, that's problematic. Yeah, and, and it's, not, it's not DTAC. It's the fact that, you know, they did a sensible thing by calling out to all of those other places that have those regulations, but there isn't an enterprise agreement that UK PLC has come up with to say... You know, if you sign up for a, a, a DTAC, you know, assessment, we will give you these standards for free. Or if you're an innovator in, in as part of the Accelerated Access Collaborative or something like that, as part of being on that track, here's a bunch of things. You know, this this package of standards or assessment criteria would cost you five grand. But as part of your membership to this, we're going to give you it for free. There's a bunch of vehicles that could be used to make things easier and to the earlier point, transparency. But I don't think people are necessarily thinking about it like that. I think at the end of the day, it's a great article to have a read of. Um, David Newey definitely knows his stuff. And to have the title Deputy CIO at the Royal Marsden, I imagine the Royal Marsden is doing some interesting things in AI with someone at the helm like this. But I do encourage everybody to have a read of bias in AI. It's a matter of time. 
published by digitalhealth.net and in Health Tech Pigeon this week. On to the final story for today. So final story this week, brain computer interface startup implants first device in US patient. So this is a really interesting story that uh, a company has implanted a device into a patient's brain, somebody who has ALS, uh, a neurodegenerative disorder, uh, to allow them to communicate. Lauren, tell us all about this one. This is proper, proper health tech. Yeah, I think it's um, it's, it's a really fascinating story. And I think it raises lots of ethical questions as well as quite a lot of um, practical questions. But I think ultimately it's a story of, you know, that thing of hope and ingenuity. It feels, you know, you can see there being a Hollywood movie being made about it at some point. Um, But in short, what is being done is it's, it's a... They're using the techniques that you would use to do cardiac stenting in order to to implant uh, this. So again, when we're talking about implanting, it's it's not the sort of typical neurosurgery, you know, lift the lid off a skull and it's quite an invasive, um, you know, long recovery type of process, which again makes it really interesting, not just because the outcome of the sort of clinical techniques that, that you use to do the implanting itself. So you can imagine that people, you know, really low recovery time, you think about infection risks and control, all of that sort of stuff. So because my background was in pain and, and pain perception, my, that was my clinical background. Oh, so interesting. So this whole thing is is fascinating for me. So I used to work in a sort of neuro-MSK and major trauma. So the sorts of people that this uh, would be affected by are exactly the sort of patients that I would have been working with, you know, previously fit and healthy wow. people who had had a... Um, you know, an accident, you know, horse riding, um, mm. motorbike, you know, these sorts of things have got real clinical benefit and application. Um, and I think it's one of those things, again, I'm going to be fascinated to see how this works its way through, as I say, the regulatory hoops, but also you can see extreme benefit. Um, and I like the use of, um, say, the cardiac stenting technique because it's a well-worn technique. One of the things that I've seen, particularly with this kind of um, med tech innovation, is the time it takes to train people in a new surgical procedure and the kit that it requires in operating theatres is also a limiting factor. So taking all of that away for this means hopefully it will have a quicker route to market and more people hopefully quicker being able to deliver this uh, to patients. So yeah, just fascinating. It is. And it's, it's, they've sort of, uh, well, I believe they've coined a term, uh, stentrode, uh, somewhere between a stent and electrode, I imagine that's come from, but yeah, the article says that founded in 2016, Synchron, which is the name of the company, has caught the attention of the brain-computer interface field because this stentrode can be inserted in without obviously cutting through a skull. Uh, you know, minimally invasive. Uh, yeah, feeds in via the jugular vein and nestles within the motor cortex. Yeah, I mean, it, it does sound sci-fi. They're also going up against... Uh, Elon Musk's Neuralink as well. Um, says the recent procedure is the first the company's done putting it ahead of its competitors, including 
Elon Musk's Neuralink. Um, yeah, it seems like this is quite a uh, quite a special event. And I know that at the end of the article it says that the CEO is looking to him to do sixteen of them in the coming months or year, I believe. But yeah, as I say, proper proper health tech. Yeah, one thing that you mentioned, Noren, as well is. The, I think you mentioned the, the moral implications in, in the list of regulatory and other implications. It, uh, this article talks about the fact that Synchron's already implanted devices into four patients in Australia. They haven't experienced side effects. I, I will add the word yet. But they have been able to carry out such tasks as sending WhatsApp messages and making online purchases. In terms of impact, that is incredible. ALS obviously being you know, degenerative and, and horrendous for, for those that have it, enabling them to have that level of functionality and quality of life and all those different things. I mean, that's incredible. But when you talk about the moral and ethical implications of this. What do you, what do you think about when you're thinking of those things? So I think there's a couple of things that came up for me was about how you assess people's mental state in in sort of procedure consenting. So if you're asking for people to mm. make difficult decisions, how do you know how effective that technology is if you're using it for you know particularly where it's a degenerative condition and with ALS eventually you know there is no cure for it it will only end up in in one place if you're looking at life lengthening um decisions or other things like that if you're relying on a technology to convey that to um the care team how much faith can you and should you be putting in the accuracy of, of that coming through? And then again, you know, thinking about it on another group of patients, the patients that I used to work with where people had been previously fit and healthy. Um, again, how are you able, you know, to use that in a say in an ethical way to explain to people and understand sort of locked-in syndromes and all those other things where people are assuming that people have no understanding about their awareness because, you know, we've seen a lot of high-profile cases where families have not wanted to the, the care teams to, you know, to stop exploring options, even when it looks like it's a, a sort of clinically grim picture. Are these technologies potentially going to be used or um, asked for for families where it's not appropriate? And is that another, you know, you can see something going to the high court in the way that you could for some of those seriously ill people previously, is this going to add another string to that potentially contentious bone? I think it's a really good point. And actually, I think where we can get excited about health tech, I think it does always have to be, well, often it has to be looked at in the context of something else that we've talked about this week, the human story, the human side of things. I think when I worked in ITU or ICU, depending on what you call it, where you're in the world, I think it was always fascinating to me how the nurses that had a hand on patients as you will have done on those patients and spoke to them every day and were close to them all the time had often wildly different beliefs about what their care should be 
based on what the traditional care should have been, if you know what I mean. So, so a doctor might make one decision, and a group, uh, the nurse or a group of doctors might, an MDT, a group of clinicians, might make a decision on care. But the one person who's one-to-one nursing that patient actually thinks and feels something different. And that always used to fascinate me, that there was something in that one-to-one human connection between a one-to-one nurse and patient that was there was some sort of communication going on between those two people that transcended the medicine almost and transcended the mzt almost which always fascinated me so that opinion just there it's it's reminded me i guess that whenever we are looking at this health tech and how cool it might be that we have to consider so much about the human side of things whenever we're thinking about these things and yeah that has definitely reminded me of that it's context. It's always context. It's the context of those yeah. human stories around layoffs. It's the context around the types of patients and the situations that families and caregivers find themselves in. All of that stuff. None of this stuff happens in a vacuum. Absolutely. Guys, thank you so much for uh, joining me this week to talk about the health tech news. Lauren, if people want to get in touch with you or we'll learn more about what you're up to, all the different things that you're up to, um, how can they get in touch with you? What can they? Where can they go to find stuff out? Uh, so I am on Twitter, um, so at L College with a D, C O L L E D G E, um, nineteen eighty three on Twitter or on LinkedIn. Um, so yeah, feel free. There'll be lots of uh, ill-informed opinions uh, spouted on both of those social media things. Um, but I just want to say thanks for having me on. It's been a ball. You're very welcome. Um, and as always, if anybody wants to get the links to all of those stories, you can get those in Health Tech Pigeon. That's a newsletter that goes out every single sunday if you're listening to this you probably get it but tell a friend we are seeing our subscribers go up pretty quickly at the moment so thanks to everybody that clearly is sharing it around yeah we love it thanks so much guys 